the blue light of morning seeps through the air, too diffused to cast shadows, yet too bright to give the darkness quarter. Cranstone Walker sits in an unfamiliar chair, nursing a calming glass of whiskey, while his sister washes the dry blood from his face. In this moment, he has no defenses. He is not present enough to second-guess his own words. There are things he has held back, things he was afraid to say, no matter how he wished to say them. In this moment, he does not have the strength to keep them from spinning from his mouth. You can try to get comfortable, but it will do you no good. It's time for Neon Jezebel. This episode of Neon Jezebel will return in just a moment, and you won't want to miss it. I got a look at the script earlier, and it's a thriller from beginning to end. But first, a word from our sponsor, Baby Blue Manatorian Cigarettes. Dimensional pockets are the scourge of our age. These areas of friction between fifth dimensional space and our fourth dimensional space can have highly damaging effects on your mental health. Those who come too close to one of these pockets frequently suffer an acute affliction of the nerves that may become permanent. The only defense against this ailment is manatorine, an all-natural product found in certain species of mushroom. Ingesting just 5 milligrams of manatorine can greatly reduce the harmful effects of dimensional pocket proximity. For my money, the best manatorine product on the market is Baby Blue Manatorine Cigarettes. They are the fastest and most affordable manatorine source on the market. Baby Blue manatorine cigarettes are wrapped in the patented Baby Blue fast-catching paper, which burns hotter and faster than any other cigarette paper available. That way you get the defense you need right when you need it. Nothing else in your pharmacist's case provides better protection for your psychological well-being. In fact, Dr. Thomas Syme, the world's leading expert on extra-dimensional affective disorder, smokes baby blues himself. The Syme Institute has given its seal of approval to this fine product and recommends everyone living in a high-risk area carry a pack with them at all times. Doctor's orders. So remember, that's baby blue manatorian cigarettes. Ask for them by name. And now, on with the program. saw so much in France, Vivian. Things I never could have imagined. Faces torn in half by a single bullet. Biplanes burning in open fields. Cavalrymen trying to control their panicking horses in a hail of machine gun fire. 
It was so loud. Every moment of combat was terribly, terribly loud. First there were the shouts of command, the grumbling of the tanks, men shouting to convince themselves they were brave. But it all disappeared when the guns started. It was a constant roar. A hundred staccatos all bleeding together and... mechanical. Just metal slamming against metal. I had no idea. None at all. We were all surprised when Britain invoked the 1812 treaty to force America and Canada into the war. They hadn't called on us for the Crimean War or the Boer. What made this one any different? Oh, the innocent days of 1914. I know father did his best to get me a commission with the US Army, but they were testing everyone for potential to use the voice. Wilson wasn't going to let one man who might have that trick up his sleeve get stuck on a desk, so it was straight into the Praetorian Guard with me. Told myself it wouldn't be so bad. We were told that the Praetorians would be part of the commanders' retinue. Half of our training was for interrogation. The voice is useless on the battlefield, all that noise. So I kept telling myself that I would be in bases, standing at some elderly general's side and questioning prisoners of war brought in from a hundred miles away. For the first year, it was very much like that. However, when General Funston died and Pershing was put in charge, it all fell apart. The Praetorian Guard was spread across the entire Western Front. We were errand boys rather than bodyguards. German POWs were being questioned in forward bases, and we were traveling from one to another as quickly as the switch girls could get word to us. I was at Vimy Ridge in April 1917. The Canadians were preparing a literal uphill battle. A couple of months before, one of the Canadians had defected to the German side. They believed the soldier was still at the ridge. One of the goals of the offensive was to capture the defector and find out just how much he had told Jerry. That's why I was there. Field Marshal Bing didn't trust his boys to take the defector alive, so I was going over the top. Bing authorized me to recruit an escort. Five men that I trusted to keep their heads on straight once we were in the German trenches. They also needed to be able to identify the defector on sight. That meant I was talking to a lot of men whose parents had been born in Germany. I found seven possibles. I only had room for five, so I left out the two who spoke the worst German. If there were more planning to defect, they would hide how well they spoke the language. Not that it mattered, in the end. We were supposed to attack on April 8th, but that was Easter Sunday. The French requested a postponement and, for the sake of morale, the Canadians agreed. The Quebecois soldiers complained, but you know how Quebecers are about religion. 
we moved to our assembly position in the middle of the night. It was quite cold and started snowing. It was nasty, but at least the snow was to our backs. It would be blowing right in Jerry's face, so we counted our blessings. It was dark when the shelling started. A massive cascade of booms from behind us, followed almost immediately by another barrage of explosions ahead of us. The engineer corps had dug under the German position and planted explosives. Once those had gone off, we went over the top. I don't know how many gun positions the engineers got, but the Germans still had plenty. My escort ran ahead of me, while I was on skeet duty. I had a trench gun, and any grenades I saw coming in were mine to shoot out of the sky. We were moving at hundred-yard increments, dodging the machine gun fire between shellings. It was on our third advance that one of my escort, Fisher, suddenly froze on the field. He just stood there with his hands out, like he was trying to keep his balance. My first thought was that he had been shot. A lot of men just stop when they've taken a bullet. I got behind the closest thing I had to cover. A little hill of dirt. I called out to him, but it was no good. I was about to run out and grab him when I started seeing little sparks of electricity in the air around him. Pops of light that became short lines and disappeared almost as soon as you'd seen them. There were flashes, and then suddenly there was a ball of white surrounding him. It looked so bright in the pre-dawn dark, but there were no shadows. It gave off no light at all. It was a pocket. Fisher had gotten caught in the center of a pocket as it was forming. All of the hairs on my neck and arms stood on end. I was high on adrenaline already and I felt this wash of dread come over me. Every ounce of courage I had disappeared and I was left with nothing but a deep and unrelenting fear. They gave us manatorine patches. If you got near a pocket, you were supposed to peel off the paper and slap it on the nearest bit of skin you could. I knew where mine were. My left pocket. My hand was shaking. I could feel the seam of my trousers like hot sandpaper against my thumb. My hand wouldn't move. I kept repeating the order in my mind, grab the patch, grab the patch. My body refused to respond. Relief was inches away and my hand wouldn't move. My eyes were locked on the ball of white. I couldn't look away. I couldn't blink. It seemed as if the pocket was expanding, filling my field of vision. It was all I could see. It was the entire world. The blasts of the artillery, the rattle of the machine guns, it all disappeared.
Then, as if my eyes had adjusted, I started to see texture in the white. There were lines of shadow, not dark, but discernible from the flat whiteness. They got clearer and clearer the longer I looked. There was a shape to them. They were darkest at the center and then faded outwards. Cylinders. They were cylindrical, and they were moving. I watched them taper to a point and then disappear. At first I thought of snakes. Snakes swimming through white, cloudy water. But then there was an especially large one. It moved across the pocket and then split into a few thinner lines that tapered and then vanished. Then I saw another. Thick like before, but it seemed farther away. Its motion was slower and it almost came to a stop. Then the thinner lines trailing it spread outwards like a fan. In a muscular motion, they closed back in and the thicker shadow surged away from me. It was a creature. There were creatures living inside the pocket, swimming in an ocean of milk. I was fumbling to get my fingers in my trousers to get them to latch on to the manatorian patch, but they were so clumsy, so slow. The entire pocket seemed to darken, as if one of the creatures had swum right up to the edge of it. I could see the tiny bumps of its skin, and I knew it was enormous. But I couldn't guess how big. Not until it opened its eye. All I wanted to do was move. To get my hands on the patch and make it stop, I just... I just wanted it to stop. But they had me. The Krakens had me. The entire pocket had become a milky eye, and it was staring right at me. Inside my brain there were little dots of cold. Icy cold, so much deeper than the snow blowing around me. And then they moved. Lines of cold, like frozen tentacles, were running along my skull. As if the creature inside the pocket was reaching out through my eyes and into my mind. That was when I started to hear the whispers. They were in a language I couldn't begin to understand, but I knew, as one knows in a dream, that they were words. The meaning was totally lost, but I could feel them commanding me. Commanding me to do I knew not what, but the insistence was there. They wanted me 
to follow their orders. The Krakens, those monsters from beyond our dimension, wanted me to be their agent. To do their will. To obey. <laughs> but that was their mistake. I wasn't some doughboy from Poughkeepsie. I was a Praetorian guard, trained to control minds, especially my own. I couldn't form words, but I could still use the voice. So I shouted. I shouted at that monster in the voice. No commands, no questions, just the primal bellow of refusal to be taken by their icy tendrils. I was in control. I would not obey. gone. The pocket collapsed, and it was gone. The light, the cast, no shadows, the monsters swimming that sea of milk, the lines of cold inside my skull. They vanished. I was hit by a wall of sound as the battle returned to my senses. I saw the gray light of morning, and then I blacked out. I woke up in a hospital in Amiens. It was like waking from a nightmare, the fear clinging to my mind, but slipping slowly away. I could still feel where the icy tendrils had been in my head, though they were no longer cold. It was only that I was aware of parts of my brain's flesh in a way that one is not accustomed to. Still, still feeling under threat, however abstracted, I sat up and took in my surroundings. I was in my underclothes, surrounded by men with bandages and IV drips. One bed in a column. One column in a room. Just another wounded man. A nurse came over, seeing that I was awake. It was then that I noticed I was clutching the bedding with both hands, in a white-knuckle grip. The nurse's approach disturbed me, but once she was close, once my mind registered the proximity of a woman and all of the comforting associations, 
I felt compelled, like with thirst or hunger. I reached out for her, and she took me in her arms. She was an older woman, with a maternal plumpness, and I sank into the soft warmth of her body. It pushed all of the dread out of me. Under my skin, I felt something like a warm bath covering my frayed nerves, soothing me. There was no more danger. There was just warmth and peace. Still, I couldn't sleep that night. As I approached the yawning black, I felt points of cold in my skull that snapped me awake. I could hear the swiftly dying echo of the Krakens, the Krakens. <sighs> my only rest came when exhaustion overpowered me. They discharged me as soon as I could walk again. Vimy Ridge was not a clean victory, and there was still need of empty beds days afterwards. My uniform had been laundered, and I reported to the nearest American command. They questioned me about the incident and determined that I required two weeks of leave before being considered for another field posting. The army lost track of me after that, and I was briefly listed as a deserter. It was quite a shock for an especially patriotic lieutenant when he found me reviewing prisoner of war lists for General Rawlinson. Once I was cleared of the desertion charge, I was given the letter informing me that mother and father had died. They sent me home immediately. It was strange to be back in the penthouse. Not just because it was the most luxurious bed I had slept in in four years. Father's sheet music was still in the piano bench. It felt wrong to sit on suddenly, but also equally wrong to take the sheet music out. The moment I fully realized how much I had lost was when I found those novels Mother kept hidden from Father. I had a few airy memories of them, catching Mother reading on the balcony and her swearing me to secrecy. Did Father really disapprove of obscene novels? Was he jealous that she fantasized about masochistic English gentlemen? Or was it just that they were badly written? <sighs> oh, I can imagine any of those being the case. But I'll never know. He and I never got drunk together. I will never hear the ancient confessions that a parent only shares with adult children. It haunted me, as it did you. And when I closed my eyes, <sighs> trying to accustom myself to the weight of it, I heard the whispers. The Krakens. The Krakens. That's why I couldn't stay. Mm. There are only so many ghosts that a man can live with at one time. You can imagine what a relief it was to hear from Lucian. Then I saw Della Kane. 
terrible and splendid all at once. Being transformed as she had by one of the pockets, she must have seen the Krakens too. Perhaps she could help me find a cure. Help me sever the connection for good. That's why I have to find her. And I need the Rosen. <sighs> oh, and I need the Rosen chain for that. If I could have talked to the Virago, made her see that we want the same thing, I could have convinced her to join the society. Bringing them an asset like her would surely have been worth the cost of their investigations. If I could have brought an end to St. Moon's vaccine project without the need for Rosenchain spies, the months of reconnaissance, the danger to our inside people, surely they would have found her for me. But I've lost her too. It's a matter of public record that I was in the Praetorian Guard. She's smart enough to realize that it was me in that bottling plant. And it was me who tried to use the voice on her. That betrayal. Oh, she may have attacked me first, but still. If someone had tried to use the voice on me under those circumstances, I would never fully believe that they wouldn't do it again. I was so close, Vivian. So close to putting an end to it all. And now I feel, I feel as far away. Good morning, Edward. I'm so glad you could join me for breakfast. Yes, one last tete-a-tete before I'm out of your hair. Oh, it's sweet of you to say so. Can I offer you a cocktail? It's a breakfast cocktail, and I'm told that the morning shift people absolutely swear by them. It's supposed to be energizing, and I've been dying to try one. Here, I've already mixed them. Now that all of our cards are on the table, I can tell you I was more than a little trepidatious coming down here. I half expected you to try to convince me to marry Michael. <laughs> 
Oh, I know, it was a silly notion, but I was so surprised by the invitation that my imagination simply went wild. The most surprising thing about our negotiations ended up being how by the book they were. Oh, not that I'm complaining. Michael's got a good head on his shoulders. Your company is going to be in good hands when you pass the baton. Sure, he still needs a bit of guidance, but I'm sure he'll have plenty. Especially once you get him settled with a nice girl. Yes, I heard about that. Once he'd had a few drinks, I didn't really have a choice. Did you ever get to meet her? Just your wife? Well, she sounds like quite a girl. Oh, yes, I've heard lots about her. Friday Johnson, she's called. Works for the Atlas Daily. Michael seemed so captivated by her, I couldn't help but do a little digging. I'm not sure what kind of girls he met in Hong Kong, if any. But a woman who can cast a spell like that in just one night is a woman worth a bit of my attention. The Atlas had her on the society page, so you know she has some social graces. Mostly, she was reporting on the debauchery of speakeasies, and she had a delightful way of detailing them. It was more like reading a diary, a very well-composed diary, than the stuffy sort of reporting one is used to. I probably shouldn't say so, lest you begin to distrust my cold, business-like mind. I found her eloquent vernacular writing refreshing. Yes, of course most women would. And... Now that we've got the vote down here, a lot more of us are going to be buying papers. The next fellows who run for president would do well to find some bright women to write some things for them. If we want politics explained to us by a man, we'll ask our husbands. <laughs> well, not me, of course. How are you liking that cocktail? Yes, it is. Much nicer than I thought it would be. One hears about energizing drinks and imagines some bitter pharmacy concoction that's somehow made even less pleasant by the addition of soda water. I suppose I shouldn't say that either. Soda fountains have been the Walker Corporation's best investment since my grandfather decided to back Westinghouse instead of Edison. Anyway, as I was saying, Miss Friday Johnson is quite the writer. Michael could do a lot worse. That said, I don't suppose she would be too eager to marry into the family. She's no fan of yours, I can tell you that. She was actually in attendance for the contract signing. Yes, that was her. She is pretty, I can't fault you there. But yes, she and I had an interview after the signing. Surprisingly, she did most of the talking. It turns out she was working on a bigger story than anything on the society page, even bigger than the Virago attacks. For the last few months, there has been a string of mysterious deaths. The victims were all infants. It wasn't getting much coverage, I'm afraid, because of the mothers. All unmarried for a start, and naturally working women, very much in the lower classes and not at all the material for a fit family contest. Do you think St. Moon will sponsor another of those this year? Yes, Edward. I'm well aware of your little contest. I'm also aware of that piece you wrote back in 1912, praising the International Eugenics Conference in London. 
not to mention the smaller gatherings you've hosted here in New York. I hear there's another scheduled for this year. Do you plan on attending? Now don't worry, Edward. Whatever my opinions of the subject are, they didn't stop me from going into business with you, did they? I just find it strange given that your wife is an immigrant. Not that I think Mary is of unfit stock. It's just that so many eugenicists seem to think the entirety of Asia is unfit, including the Slavs. Like my mother. Well, I can tell you, Miss Johnson is adamantly opposed to the whole thing. In fact, she traced those infant deaths to what she believes is a eugenic conspiracy. As if forced sterilizations weren't enough, it seems someone has taken the next step and is trying to poison all sorts of unfit children in this country. In fact, she thinks it's you. I have to say, I was impressed by how much research she had done. She managed to trace the source of the poison to a combination of your near-beer, Yippity, and St. Moon Fortified Infant Formula. What do you think? No, I meant about the cocktail. Yippity and St. Moon Infant Formula. You're looking rather peaked, Edward. I'm not feeling so well myself, but your cocktail had much more of the milk fortifier in it. And it's not polite for a lady to drink so heavily. Ugh. Certainly not at breakfast. Oh my. Edward? Edward? Do get off the floor, Edward. It's not becoming of a host to have a nap in, in front of guests. Oh, that's most unbecoming. It's no good. Uh, vomiting didn't help those children. Uh, and they didn't... And they got quite a bit less than you did. Uh, shall I... Ring for the steward. Ah, oh, yes. I should. Well, I still can. Dateline, March 5, 1921. Today, the New York City Police Department released a statement regarding the death of Mr. Edward Blake. After an autopsy and thorough investigation of all suspects, the NYPD has ruled Blake's death 
an accident. The coroner's office found that Blake was poisoned by a combination of ingredients found in low-alcohol beer, Yippity, and an infant formula, both products of the St. Moon Corporation. Edward Blake was the chairman of St. Moon. Blake drank the cocktail on the morning of March 1st. Today's report clears Miss Vivian Walker of any possible suspicion. Walker of Silkhaven, King Charles Island, was present when Blake was poisoned and admitted to police that she made the offending cocktail. According to her now-released statement to the police, Walker had been told that many office workers were mixing low-alcohol beers and powdered milk as a breakfast cocktail. Walker said that she chose the beer, Yippity, and the infant formula because they were both St. Moon products. Walker was found by a steward employed at the Blake Oriental Hotel shortly after collapsing under the poison's effects. Both Walker and Blake were rushed to the hospital. During the investigation, Walker was held by police at St. Joseph's Hospital. She was released today, following the police declaration. Miss Walker was seen leaving the hospital under her own power, accompanied by her brother, Cranston Walker, and Gabrielle Blake, daughter of the late Edward Blake. Sources say that Miss Blake and Miss Walker have been acquaintances since childhood. Cranston Walker spoke with reporters, offering his deepest condolences to the Blake family and said that his sister had made a full recovery. A statement from St. Moon arrived at the offices of the New York Atlas just before print time. In this statement, Acting Chairman Michael Blake apologized to the people of New York City for the danger his family's company presented. He assured the people that both Yippity Beer and St. Moon Fortified Infant Formula are being immediately discontinued and recalled. The statement goes on to say that all St. Moon food products are subjected to rigorous safety testing. The recalled products were only poisonous when mixed, and, as they were never intended for mixture, the company had no knowledge of their poisonous interaction. The police report corroborates this, as a thorough search of St. Moon's offices turned up no evidence that the company was aware of the deadly concoction of the two products. The statement from St. Moon adds that it intends to continue doing business with the Walker Corporation with no ill will. Edward Blake is survived by his wife, Mary, and two children, Michael and Gabrielle. is written by Zachary Westbrook. Vivienne Walker is played by Amy Alea. Gabrielle Blake is played by Susan Day. Friday Johnson is played by Kristen Pimlet. Cranston Walker is played by Zachary Westbrook. Announcement by me, Camille Faucon. You can connect with us on Twitter at NeonDisabellePod or on Instagram at Neon Podcast. 
All of your episodes can be found on our website neonjezebel.com. Oh, 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 oh,